So welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am here, as I am always here, with my co-host, my friend, my cohort, Teos Alpha Stream Abdiya. Hey, Sean. How's it going? That's how we always start. It's going fine, Teos. It's going <laughs> fine. So what have you been up to? Uh, wearing a lot of masks and uh, applying hand sanitizer liberally. Yeah, this is the first time I've recorded this with a mask on, and I'm probably going to do it from now on. Well, you know, the one reason we just said yes to Game Hulkon is because you have to be fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. you have to wear masks, yep. and all of the showers are just that hand sanitizer. Is that why my eyes burn so much this morning? <laughs> well, yeah, you're supposed to close your eyes uh, when you do it. Now you tell me. Now you tell me. So, uh, let's, th- let's talk about some news, shall we? We are here at Game Hulkon, and there is more news coming out every day than there usually has been like four or five years ago in, in a month. It's really shocking. There's so much. And even just D&D news, like it, it's, you, you can try to even subcategorize it. If you were to say like DMs Guild releases, like I don't, you can no longer cover even a small part of the pie yeah. in one 30-minute segment. In, when, when fifth edition came out, I felt like we would get news from Wizards of the Coast once every six months. Something might come out. Yeah. Oh, the next release. Now it's like three times a week we are getting news about something D&D or Wizards of the Coast related. And it's just, it's impossible to keep, this is my job, right? <laughs> I, I'm a yeah. full-time worker in the industry, and I don't even know what's going no. on with the game that I'm, I'm working on. Uh, so it's, it's been a challenge. That's um, true. Uh, but I suspect that if we were to, watch this be wrong, but I suspect that if we were to poll the audience about a certain magazine article that had everybody talking this week, they, there might be some folks who know what I'm thinking of. Okay. Let's see. Well, we, we have more than I thought were here. So. Yeah. So uh, how many people have heard or read about the big news from Wired Magazine uh, about certain labor issues in the industry? Oh, only one. Hey, you're, you're Our, about to get some news. I see, I told you, someone will be, you, you, I mean. A large percentage is oh, yeah. a, a basically 9%. <laughs> well done. And remember, the $5 is at the end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, there was an article on Wired Magazine that interviewed, I think it said something like 16. This is going off memory. But uh, a number of people that were employees, particularly at Paizo, and a couple of freelancers at Wizards of the Coast about working conditions and pay uh, at those companies. And it's a fascinating read. Yep. Uh, So the article talks about uh, Paizo mostly. And we've heard recently, as we covered on our show last week, that there is uh, a union forming, not not might form, has formed, uh, of Paizo workers. And this is, as far as I know, really a first in the industry. And uh, it will probably have repercussions throughout the industry, maybe not immediately, but down the line, uh, something's going to happen. And Wired Magazine followed up with this article about sort of the working conditions, not just at Paizo, but at other companies, uh, Wizards of the Coast specifically. And one of the things to remember is, there's a difference between full-time employees, contractors, and freelancers. Yeah. Those are three different categories that are used by in different numbers at different companies. Some are much more freelance-driven. Some have a few freelancers, but mostly full-time employees. Sometimes contractors become a big part of that. And so this, this article also talked about that. 
Yeah, and there are a lot of interesting things. I highly recommend the, reading this, but it, it includes salary figures and folks saying that within the last three years they've had uh, full-time jobs of $35,000 in Seattle area where rent is 1800 a month. So you can do the math. That's not good. Uh, so the idea of just being able to have a family and live a good life while doing those jobs is pretty hard. And they also spoke about how at Paizo, one of the things about being full-time employees is that you would pick up freelance contracts in addition to your normal job, and then and you needed those to be able to afford groceries and so on. Um, and and there are a number of quotes and examples of that. And that's that's really tough when people are saying, "quote If I don't get if I didn't get freelance gigs, I didn't have a food budget." Yeah. And there's there's Teos and I work in the industry. A bit, so we don't want to point fingers or cast blame or aspersions on anyone because who knows? You know, you have to walk in someone's shoes for a while before you know why mm-hmm. decisions are made. But there are some pretty damning quotes in there yeah. of people hearing, like the CEO of Paizo, saying things like, "They should want to work here, you know, for any price because other people would do it for free," and that's that's. That's troubling. It's it's not a direct quote. It, you know, hearsay is hearsay. But you know, even if that attitude is out there anywhere in the industry, uh, that's that's pretty bad uh, across the board. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what continues to happen. I mean, it, it's going to be interesting this coming week. What Paizo does, uh, how it responds to the union, um, and what comes from that. And then I think a lot of other people are going to be looking at this, and and it helps with that goal that we all have, which is people getting paid properly for doing the good role-playing game work. So. Mm-hmm. That we all enjoy. Yep. Uh, other news is doesn't really affect the U.S. all that much at this point, but um, the core 5e D&D books are now going to be translated and distributed and manufactured in German, French, Italian, and Spanish. And I know this is something that you care about, being uh, a Colombian-American. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we've said this on the show before, but the, the short of it is that the old contract was through Spain for Spanish books. And so if you wanted, if you were in, you know, Chile and you want to order a player's handbook, you'd have to order it from Spain and pay European prices plus shipping. And it would end up being like 100 something U.S. dollars, which in local economy is just a big no. So, uh, so it's really good that now you can actually go to your local store and you can say, hey, I want, you know, WOCA9217ES, and that's the code that will get you one of those core handbooks. And so those codes are now out there. They'll be in our show notes if you need them. Um, but you can also just talk to your store and say, I want to get this, and it will be ordered as they would normally order a book. It's not coming in through this other distributor. Mm-hmm. But nothing is simple. No, no, <laughs> sadly. So companies that were uh, licensed to distribute in other languages that were really doing good work had their licenses removed because Wizards took took all of it back. So while some people who didn't have access to these books at a reasonable price are now getting them and are very happy, the people that did were getting access to the books at a reasonable price and loved the translations that were happening are now out of luck and are complaining because nothing has been done yet to keep up with the need that they had because they already have their core books but they want the other stuff that's coming and that's coming very slowly yeah so we'll see what happens there because uh like the the folks in japan are like hey tasha's has never arrived is it coming will we ever get it because we would have if you'd kept that old relationship um so we'll we'll see what happens with that and 
Wizards hasn't, as, I, as far as I know, have not addressed this at all. Yeah. So what, what other news? We have like th- five, six pages of news. We're so, not going to be able to cover yeah, all. Yeah, we... I think in a, in, in a summary level, check the, the uh, Yawning Portal blogs because the Adventures League has been nonstop. Uh, they released Dungeon Craft Guidance, which is the new program under which you can contribute to the current season of play. And that phrase is a little changed as well. Um, but you currently, it's, it's all around the Feywild and Witchlight. So you can now write for it, uh, sort of in partnership with that, but not, not in a monetary sense. Uh, the, the DMs Guild or OBS have released a Dungeon Craft Spotlight, which is their program. Uh, but you can also write Dungeon Craft Adventures using the Domain of Delight. And there are examples you can use, and you can make your own domains. And so you can get a lot of these documents for free, and you can see the rules and then write and be part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, what isn't clear is, is how, uh, I think, how popular those will be. Like, there have been a couple of these programs that haven't really taken off, and it's hard to know exactly why. So hopefully this new energy in this area will prove that. Well, one of the things that's interesting is it's a great way to break into writing, first of all, through the Adventures League and through these programs. One of the problems with the previous programs is they were competing with the actual AL adventures that were published, but they're not going to publish any just straight AL Witchlight adventures. So that competition has been taken away. So now there's more of a possibility that the work that's done will get a little more attention uh, as opposed to you know, having to fight against the 12 or 16 core adventures that were published directly from Wizards of the Coast through the Adventures League. Yeah. Um, so then on Wild Beyond the Witchlight itself, there was a, a long post that talked about what's being done there and, and sort of the future of thinking by uh, Chris Tulak, who heads the organized play now, uh, once again. Um, so we have three types of campaigns in Adventures League. We have expansion campaigns, which are things like Oracle War or Mist Hunters that have a beginning and an end, and it's a program, and you can play it and go through it and enjoy it. But you can't take characters out of it into any of the other campaigns. Great point, yes. Yeah, so it's all focused. Um, but those are really good. I mean, both of those programs have been strong. Event campaigns, these are meant for veteran players with a storyline that's based on sort of all products, not a product. And this is your Dreams of the Red Wizards. What's interesting is that this seems to be the main emphasis for AL play these days, which seems a little strange, but maybe it's just the, we're so used to working on a seasonal basis that's focused on the main storyline book, and now it looks like it's shifting to me. The primary focus is sort of Dreams of the Red Wizards. And the last is Adapted Campaigns, and that is where you can you know, go to the guild right now and you can find things for Tyranny Dragons and Elemental Evil, and you can also find instructions that tell you how to run the hardcover book. And that looks like what might happen mostly for the future. So for Witchlight, there are two adventures that can help you get started that pretty much just use the actual written adventure. Uh, and then you can choose to... Um, you can then download the, the book, the, the guide that will let you use the actual book and play through all of it. And in fact, if you go to the Baldman Games uh, virtual play weekends, what they will offer for this season of Witchlight is playing through the hardback book. So you can find DMs and just play through all of it that way. How many people here have played Adventurers League at some point? All right. How many people play regularly? Semi-regularly. Well, you know, I you, play every time a game Okay, that that's yeah. I guess technically that's regularly. If you play once a year, that's regular. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's and you know for some for 
What I've found is some DMs are their home game DM, no one else DMs, and the only time they get to play is when they come to a convention. So, you know, that, this is my one time per year I get to actually play, um, which is, you know, not necessarily what the Adventures League is there for, but it's still good. It's still something you actually do get to play. Um, and we're going to talk about conventions later mm-hmm. and, and get, get into all of that. But, but I think this is where what this blog post is really about is trying to figure out how do we best serve the community from different approaches mm-hmm. uh, because it's a hard thing to do. It, it is, it, no one has ever found a perfect way to involve players. You have some people who want to play you know, five times a week, mm-hmm. some people who want to play once a year, and how do you make that feel satisfying, right? Yeah. Because I, I've had sort of more of the, where I play at, say, two or three conventions, and I can't play the whole season. Mm-hmm. So then I've got these giant gaps in story and knowledge. So then maybe I start playing things like Moonshay Adventures, right? Because where it's a little, but then if the release picks up, eh, so it's all hard, right? Yeah. How do you balance all those needs and desires? Right. And, and the, the, the consumer base can be vocal. And so the, you know, the people that want to play a different adventure every day get mad if only one adventure comes out per week for reasons, because that's, that's what they want. But if you put out a bunch of adventures, the more casual player will then feel left out because they can't play everything, and then they feel like they're missing part of the story. So that's one of, like, 50 different balancing acts that you need to do when you create and run an organized play campaign. And so that's, as you said, that's why Chris came out with this. Here are the different flavors that we're going to try. And it's always an experiment. For, yeah. for this. Um, they're always trying new things, and sometimes things are going really well for one group, so they, but not for another group, so they change things, and then the group... It's almost like the, uh, the translation thing we talked about, yeah, right? Yeah. It's great for the groups that had not. It's bad for the groups that had, and, and it's all being switched around. And, so. and I haven't done half the work you've done on organized play campaigns. You haven't done a quarter of the work I've done. Not, yeah, that's even a, I don't know, what is like a six? <laughs> maybe, maybe, nah, I probably even have done a six. But when I did do an organized play campaign, I felt like it was like levers where if you pull one thing down, another pops up. Mm-hmm. You can't get them all to perfect, right? And so you just have to choose like what is your problem area and, and I'll, I'll let that live for a while because I need to solve this other problem. I mean, I remember Teos ran Ashes of Athos for 4th edition, if, if you remember that. It was like the one-off um, Dark Sun campaign. Mm-hmm. And they made a lot of great choices in terms of limiting, limiting the player options because it's Dark Sun. And everyone was pretty happy with that. The very first convention I, I was running a game at, and the players sat down with, like, two paladins and a cleric. For um, a world that has no divine for casters. A, no, no divine casters. In the, but, you know, so they and they were kids, weren't they? They were like teenagers. Yeah, they, 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 were, they were even younger than that. So you don't want to, like, tear up their character sheet in front. Well, you do want to, but you can't. <laughs> You're not supposed to. You're not supposed it's to. It's frowned upon. I know, I know. But, and so, you know, that's... So what do you say to, to, to the, these kids? Do you say whatever and then the other players are rolling their eyes because they know but they you know so it's it's always this like you say the the levers uh, going up and down if i recall one of them was like a diva paladin or something like that it was, oh, it was yeah. even like a majelic figure in a world right. with no gods right. oh boy yep but we let them play and then at the end we said by the way yeah, yeah. dark sun has these quirky worlds and if you want to play there are pregens on the website and and you know yeah. you, should change you, your you characters. do the best you can and it's fine so i've heard of this thing called critical role Oh, um, yes. <laughs> I, I you think roll a die. Right, and you get a natural 20. And you 20. get millions. Yeah, is, what, what about if I put an E on the end? Uh, then you <laughs> yes. get more than millions? Yes. Uh, so campaign three of Critical Role begins 
today, today, I believe. Yeah. Uh, they're going to do the whole theater experience. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. So you can go and watch the premiere in a theater with all the other people that might be in there. I bet it does better than when they ran the Acquisitions Incorporated one in theaters. It might, but that didn't have a pandemic. So That's true. And it had a free adventure that was well advertised. So I don't know. But, <laughs> but I think it's less important that how many people wrote. show up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, instead of like whether people show up, it's just the fact that you have the relationships mm-hmm. with which to do this. It's one thing to say Wizards pulled that off, right? But Critical Role is pulling it off, and I think, like I, I I'm one of those folks that says nobody's ever going to compete with Wizards. And then I look at Critical Role and I go, there, there's a path. Mm-hmm. There's a path by which they could actually do that. Yeah, it's called the internet. Well, in entertainment, it's it's larger than a role playing game, right? right. Because that's where Wizards operates. They are not. They're an entertainment company, mm-hmm. and D and D is an entertainment vehicle. Right. It's a branding thing. It's a you know. It's it's larger. It's not just about the game. Yeah. And so you can't compete with D and D on like I wrote a really good rule set. Great. What's your TV plan? What is your movie <laughs> distribution plan? What is your gear and apparel plan? Right. And Critical Role has some of those possibilities. Right? Yeah. And the question I then have as a game designer who just focuses on the rules and the tiny little words on the page is how is this all going to affect role-playing games? Hmm. Yeah. yeah are, are we still going to have a game to play? <laughs> or do we're going to have to make our own game as, yeah. as everyone is, is on Netflix playing the weird game that you do with the remote control? Right. Uh, you know, on, well, uh, D&D tried that ages ago, and that didn't work then. So maybe it'll keep not working. We'll keep having video, uh, role-playing games, which is what we want. Yeah, but we also thought, who would watch people play D&D? That's true. And that that changed. Yeah. Who would watch people play video games? Well, apparently about 100 million people will watch people play video games. So how many folks in the audience regularly watch a stream? Like, do you have at least one stream you watch regularly? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty good. So round so, half. Again, what's regularly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, like, if you have one that, you know, you, you try to catch most episodes sure. or something, that's, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, so that's a thing that's, that's, that's just, it's a force, right? And it'll continue going. And Critical Role is the biggest force by far of all of them. Um, this new campaign of theirs will take mm-hmm. place in a new the desert lands of Marquette, which is a region that's been sort of talked about a little bit, but obliquely now it's going to be the focus. Uh, we know that that region is being done up, uh, written up for role-playing game use as well. Matt Mercer's the DM again. It's still using 5e, still D&D. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to continue pre-recording the episodes so that you know they don't do them live. They right. stopped doing that a while back ago, but it's still not edited, so mm-hmm. you get the you know yeah. getting the actual thing they recorded. Yep, which I, uh, is becoming more and more popular. I think. Yeah, I I taught a class on game design to twenty college students, and I asked them the first day how many of you play D and D regularly, and maybe half of them raised their hand, and I said how many of you learned about D and D through a stream, and fifteen of the twenty students learned about D&D, not through playing, but through a stream first. Ten of those 15, it was critical role that, that first brought them to, to the game. So thank you, Matt, and, and uh, everybody yeah. <laughs> for uh, making this game popular to, to a younger generation of, of players. And, uh, you want to talk about the mini. I know you well, want to. Well, I do, to. but should we, we should mention that we also are getting this new book, right? Yeah, who cares about the book? Oh, yeah, okay. No, okay, Fine. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just going mean, to... Well, this... What I find most fascinating... So, okay, there's a Critical Role book. It's called The Nether Deep. Cool. And some amazing people worked on it. Mm-hmm. But it's in concert with Wizards of the Coast. Right. And I think we'd reached the point where we were sort of wondering, 
did that, you know, they had wild mount, are they done? Is there no more partnership? Is why is that the case? And so, oh, out of nowhere, here comes another collaboration. Yeah, and and it was it was out of nowhere because we've known about like Strixhaven for months, and to, to the point where I thought it was already out, and I realized that hasn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one was oh, by the way, on Saturday we're going to make an announcement, and then boom, here's this next book. And again, yeah, we were wondering if Critical Role would make their own game because right. they made their own game studio, right? And they're doing board games through it but they haven't taken the next step into role-playing games yet. Yeah. So you know, it's still interesting to think about. But like you say, entertainment. You can make so much more money with a TV series or with a movie or with even yeah. streaming than publishing a role-playing game. So maybe it's maybe I don't want to make this sound too snotty, but maybe it's beneath them. Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of the the resources they have to actually make a new make a new game. I mean, I have to admit that I was a little surprised they launched a board game and role playing game company because they have that media. I mean, they're all LA people, right? Like they yeah. have that side to them. They have that possibility. But so it'll be interesting to see where this continues and whether there continue to be partnerships with Wizards or whether they see more strength in acting independently or doing even non-role-playing game things. Yeah. Okay, now you can talk about the, the mini. All right, all right. So there's this really huge, gargantuan, Tarask figure. Right? Yeah. That's exactly right. So, I mean, it's so awesome. Like, it's, it's what you... It's like WizKids has a bunch of kids running the show or something, right? In a good way. In a good way, because they're like... Dude, we totally got to do the Tarrasque. Okay, you know, and, and, and just, I thought they'd be done with premium figures quite some time ago. And, and no, they just keep doing it. And what they do is they increase the price. So it's $420. Mm-hmm. I know, that's where we don't say yes anymore. Yeah. Do you want that? Yeah. Do you want to pay for it? Ooh, $420. <laughs> for our listeners, there was a cringe in the audience uh, that we could, it was actually audible. A wave uh, of pain. Uh, it comes out in fall of 2022. It's 11 inches high, 15.5 inches long, weighing in at 7 pounds, which is 2 pounds heavier than Tiamat. So take that, Dragon Queen. Yeah. And that goes well with your 4-foot-tall Driss Dorden uh, statue, right? That I hand-built from Salami. <laughs> uh, we have a Salami joke that soon there will be D&D branded Salami because Teos right. saw some in Spain several years ago. Uh, no, I saw an ad about it. Oh, you it saw was a an legend. Ad. I mean, for years, because the internet didn't have proof of it. We had to find, like, did this thing exist? People were saying there was branded salami, and then someone found the ad in a magazine in Spanish. Uh, but, but I just want to... Oh. That is... I've got a pack of the... For fuel at this convention, you want to have healthy treats. So I got the Nerds Gummy Clusters. Nerds Gummy Clusters. D&D branded, of course. And if you don't think that I have a sealed packet at home so that... If we lose the internet, I will be able to prove that it existed. Okay. You can't. Well, the salami would probably still have lasted as well. So. Can you imagine? Yes, I can. All right. Uh, any other news you want to you want to talk about? I mean, I think it's very related to Game Con because uh, John Peterson is here, okay. and I'm going to go to a session talking about uh, his new book, Game Wizards. Um, DM David has an article that does a nice review on his blog, dmdavid.com, of the story, the, the, the book that, uh, history accounting that John Peterson just wrote in Game Wizards. Uh, it walks through, I think, up until like 83 or 85, and everybody who's reading it is just like, this is awesome. It's full of juicy tidbits about TSR and how it all started, and 
I think does the unique job of he's just he pulls together so many historical records that nobody even knew existed and not only does he have them right but it's like he finds them he, he pulls them together and analyzes them and there's sales figures and all kinds of really juicy bits on on really how this was a dysfunctional company yeah and it's funny some of the people that read it and said this is really good are people that work for tsr even so i i think uh you can't question the veracity of of the research and and of the the words on the page well and it goes to show that a lot of people back then didn't know how problematic the the company was right you only saw a little wedge of what you're working on and you didn't know the financial figures and all of that and, and i think when when there've been some stories of like when wizards bought out tsr that like people who had worked on lines would go why did we ever make this this was such a bad idea now that i know what this makes or loses per unit like i heard the darks and adventures that were in those nice slip cases mm-hmm. they lost money with every sale right make it up in volume <laughs> yeah and without the internet back then, right. you, you, you wouldn't hear these things. You would just buy the book, play the game, and, mm-hmm. and ev- everything. More of these. Yeah, keep going, keep making more. And uh, it might not be the best business decision, but you have to do what you have to do. All right, any news out there? Any news from listeners? Any, any big uh, any excitement that is happening in the industry that, that you want to share? No? All right. We covered every we single covered every new thing. thing. Except right. the ones we skipped. Well, except those, yeah. yeah. All right, so let's talk about our main topic, which is conventions. Why, why do we come? Why, why are we here? And what's the way to get the most out of the convention, depending on who you are and what your interests are? Yeah. What do you think? I mean, that is the hardest thing to, to balance for me, is what I want to do at a convention, hanging out with people. Of course, playing games, which I, I think that was my original approach, was I must fill every hour of my day with a game, including the ones where I would normally sleep. That's the way I used to approach it when I was younger. Uh, but there's seminars and panels and streams. Dealer's room. You're supposed to eat and shower. Sleep. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's the same. I'm the same way. When I first went to a convention, um, it was to play every, every slot I could. And then... It was to DM every slot I could. Yeah. And, and then it was to make as many connections as I could. And so it shifted so much over the years. Um, but it's all fun. Mm-hmm. That, that's the amazing thing is, you know, if I'm c- covering panels, I could set in 14 panels in a row and love every second of, of all of it. Um, and that's why conventions, especially the size of this, is, is wonderful. I love yeah. Game Con. Because it's big enough that there's lots to do, and it's small enough that you can reach out and, and really connect with people uh, in so many different ways, whether it's at a game table or at the bar after afterward. Right, right. And th- those are big, big angles to a convention. Like, are a lot of people sort of in the same space? Can you find people and run into people effectively? And sometimes they're really big cons. They offer so much, but it's really hard to have a moment with somebody and you know, are you going to be able to see most of the people you wanted to see? That can be an important thing. Mm-hmm. So, so what are you doing, for example, this convention? Uh, so I'm on events like this. There are a couple. There's a, two live stream games. You know, you've got some live stream games. You've got panels. Uh, I'm attending panels. And then I'm playing some games that are non-D&D game. Well, mostly. I'm, I'm like things that are, like, say, not Adventurers League, not typical D&D, because I'm trying to try different things out. So how did conventions change 
the way that you enjoyed the hobby uh, you know over the years and now you started you should probably say when you started like playing and then when you started going to conventions feels like 1936 but um <laughs> but i'm told so it was it was in the year 2000 that i went to my first convention and um which already probably makes me old anyway but doesn't feel that long ago uh, and I heard that there was this thing called a convention, and it was in Virginia, and which is where I lived, and that was amazing. And I went there with great trepidation, and then it was like, oh, my God, there are such good DMs here and cool players, and they all know stuff about this Living Grey Hot campaign, and I was just sucked into a rabbit hole. Yeah. The, I played, I was from a very small town, and just one group played, and I played with them. And, but I heard about these conventions, and this was when Living City and the RPGA first started. And I said to the players in my group, we should go to this, one of these conventions. They sound great. And they're like, do you know what freaks are at these conventions? Literally. They, they said that. And I'm like looking around going, yeah, I can, I can imagine what, <laughs> exactly what freaks are at these conventions. But you know, it was a very small town, small-minded sort of weird normal Sure. Playing D and D, although everyone else out there from our town says we're weird for playing D and D, but at these conventions, who knows? And I finally convinced them to go to this small. It was an RPG at game day at the next town over. Had a game store. That's where it was. So I convinced them, and off we go. There's just two of us, me and another guy, and we wanted to play the Living City event that was there. Well, we got there, and there was one table full of people, and I was like, "We'd love to play Living City. We've heard about it." And they're like, well, we're full. You should go over to that table. And it was, you know, it was like that pan to the corner. It was dark, like two guys sitting there. And they're playing Call of Cthulhu, not even playing Living City. And they're like, yeah, you could play over there. And so I left that experience thinking the RPGA is horrible. All these people are horrible. And it was just one experience. <laughs> but, you know, I was a teenager. I just thought. I knew the world from this one time. Yeah. And, and so that experience was, was bad. And I never bothered again until third edition came out and we started playing Living Greyhawk with a local group. And they had a convention. I'm like, well, we're going to give this one more try. It was awesome. Mm. It was, like you said, great DMs, super friendly people. And right then I, I was like, these are my folks. These are the folks that I yeah. wanted, have wanted to be with forever. But I never got to see them. And so all I wanted to do then was go to conventions and be as good as the DMs that I were, yeah, were running for totally. me. I wanted to do what they were doing and learn from them. And so that whole experience changed the way I thought of games, played games, you know, interacted with games, all of that. And led to writing and designing. Yeah, slowly but surely, yeah. yeah. yeah it, I, it, got it was the same for me, and I just, you know, like, wait, there's an admin that comes up with this plot line? That's amazing. So you're like, you're a DM, but super powered. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So thinking about that makes me think of what makes, like, a game really work. A convention game? Yeah. What, like makes what, a what makes for a great, like, what are the ingredients? What's the spice that makes that yeah. trip to the table work well versus not? Well, let's well. differentiate first between sort of an organized play campaign mm. versus a, a one-shot sure. that you might play. Yeah. And both are great mm -hmm. for the opposite reasons, right? For, for a, uh, not necessarily the opposite reasons, but for a living campaign or an organized play campaign, you know the rules. Um, 
you, you know what you're getting into when you sit down, and you're playing to share that experience with with the group and with the DM on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a it's a campaign. Uh, it's your home campaign. It's just worldwide. Yeah. When you go to play a one shot, what what I love about one shots is I want to play something that I'm going to learn a lot about. So either a new game, a new system. Uh, Pre-gen characters, I think, are important for that. Yeah. Making really interesting pre-gen characters that uh, help the player navigate the sort of trepidation you might have if you sit down with a, with a bunch of strangers to play because you can then focus on, all right, I have three role-playing hooks um, and I have a goal. I can focus on that and let the rest of the game flow around me rather than trying to navigate that, that jungle and that's on my own. That's right. They're so fascinating, right? Because you think of like, well, what makes a great one shot? And we're talking about pregens, and it's like you're not even in the adventure, and there are all these factors that you should be good at doing, which is a very tall order um, to to make that happen. Like, just it's very easy for someone to write a one shot adventure and then go like, oh yeah, I should get some pregens, mm-hmm. just chuck them in. But it's true when you sit down and, and when you're, and that's why I think people who design need to play and need, you need to do what you're doing. Uh, so that you can understand it from the customer perspective because when you sit down at tables, I just did a few hours ago, and someone hands you a pregen, you want it to be evocative and you want it to hook you into whatever we're going to do so that you're feeling it, right? Mm-hmm. But that's work. That's real work to weave that together. And some of the best, like um, uh, Steve Townsend wrote an adventure, Siege of Gardmore Abbey. Mm-hmm. It's a prequel to the Gardmore Abbey adventure. And in it, you get these pregens, and they have, and you can find this in Dungeon Magazine too. Mm-hmm. But it, um, in it, he 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 has these goals that you have, and some of them are sort of secret goals, and they cross into one another of the other players, and they create these, you know, relationships and strengthen the experience. And then they there are parts in the adventure where some of them kind of activate. Mm-hmm. And my favorite spoiler is the uh, player of the half orc or orc character he has a moment when orcs attack and he can switch sides and you get to make that decision right and mostly players decide not to but it was just you give them that power and everybody just goes like whoa you're are you going to switch sides on us and and then you know that's a great right it's just really fun yeah and that sort of thing where the players can sort of be at odds is fun very very tricky Mm -hmm. you really have to let the characters know let the players know are you okay with this? This might happen. And, and if it does, are we going to be able to handle it? Or are we going to have rule books out, uh, you know, arguing over every single small thing? And that, that leads to another point, which is if you're teaching a game, what's the right balance of teaching the rules versus actually have, telling a fun story? Uh, and, and what do the players want out of it? Uh, because if you have a two-hour uh, game and you spend the first hour and a half just going over all the rules you're probably not going to be able to tell a yeah. fun story in, in 30 minutes. I had a friend who wanted to try Shadowrun for the first time, and she sat down, and they're like, well, we're going to create your characters. And they created characters for an hour and a half and then did some like world explanation, and then they didn't even get through a combat. And so for her, that was a real letdown, right, because she did not care about the character creation. She wanted to experience the world that everyone had been talking to her about. And, so that's... and that's one of the things we've talked about before about teaching D&D. Do you start with character creation or do you start with a pre-gen? You know, what's the best way to hook a, a, a new player? Um, and I don't think there's a right answer. I think there's a right answer depending on the person. Uh, yeah. But at a convention like this, you sort of do need that pre-gen to, um, 
it, especially if you only have a two-hour window. And now, you know, with a game like Fate, it's I've played Fate a few times, and the most fun of Fate was creating the characters because there's so much storytelling that goes on and connecting of yeah. of play, uh, characters to each other. That sure, that, then that can work. That, that that could work. Yeah, and then you could do something like that where your the creation is half the fun, and then seeing a little bit of it is totally fine, right? Um, you, yeah, you mentioned rules, and it's very interesting that when you are teaching a game for the first time, how deep you go and in what order you cover things. Right? If you think of somebody that might be teaching D and D five e, and if you were to just spend thirty minutes on the character sheet, it's not going to be a lot of fun, and you're not going to remember all of it. So can you phase that into little chunks so that it, it feels better? And we've talked about it before, you know, Chris Tulak at one point created a, a way to do this where you would each room sort of taught you a different part of the character sheet. And that was a very effective way to be like, don't worry about what you've got in front of you. We're going to go through this. Or when you wrote that adventure for Acquisitions Incorporated uh, that was a convention event, they created custom character sheets that were very simple. And they had funny things like the fighter said something like, your job's to take the blows others can't handle. Just, you know, English language, fun, quirky bits, and just here's your armor class and your hit points, and don't worry about too much of the stuff. This is what you do well. It's a simple sheet, very easy to digest, and that can work really well. Yeah, and I use conventions to learn new, rule, new, uh, new games all the time. That's one of the joys of conventions is here's an expert in this game. They're going to have to... They're gonna, I paid for this ticket. They have to sit down and teach you this game. Yeah. That's it. That's what well, and sometimes it's a, it's a setting more than, or, or both. It could be setting and rules. Uh, and there are some, sometimes, you know, when you're writing so many games and you're a program, you're, you know, you're a company and you're creating all these different things, you forget that every one of your creations that's going to be for conventions must do the job. And so you might write something quirky that just doesn't work or only, you know, has inside jokes or whatever. And so knowing what you're doing, what your audience is, uh, and how to deliver on it. So, like, one of my favorite convention games ever, uh, actually two of them, were from the system, the RPG Eclipse Phase, which is a far future transhumanity. You can download your intelligence into a thing. And they do not give you, you know, go protect this caravan, which I hate it when a sci-fi game does that because we've got so much to drop on, like, blow my mind. And so one of them was, you all wake up, you have the exact same pregen here, and you're like, what, the same pregen? You're illegal copies of your original, and your PDA lights up and tells you that you just committed a murder across town. You're wanted for murder. So you should all be deleted right now, and that's all you know, go. And this is fascinating. We're playing the exact same character, and we got to unravel this mystery. And like that is sci-fi, right? That is wacky stuff. Or you are strapped on a rocket, and you're going to impact a ship. But we didn't have enough money to cover all the costs, so you, your rockets and sponsorships. So you're being filmed while you're heading on this rocket ship to impact that spaceship. You know, I really love the feel of the Turbo 26 rocket. You know, like, and we're doing that. And it, so we're immediately hamming it up and, and just the crazy concept before that ship hits a sun and blows it up, right? Just And that, that everybody's playing the same character, so cool for teaching, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to say, wait, barbarian, I have to talk to the wizard. You can just say, oh, yeah, you see, everybody see on your sheet? There it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. What are some good con games you've played? Oh, I, uh, none. None? None. No, I mean, so, so many over the years. Like, well, we wrote Confrontation at Candlecape. Yeah, that was, that was a tough one. Um, trying to teach fourth edition 
mm-hmm. and have fun. Or D&D Next, really. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah early, that's right. early, early D&D, D&D Next. Yeah, that was, that was wild uh, in the sense that it was teaching, but it was also sort of a mini interactive epic where tables would affect each other. So how we did that was we had a dragon that flew from table to table. Um, and so the, ta- the characters are first level, and they're fighting this dragon. Um, so they were each doing some damage. But then you got the people who were like, well, can I ride the dragon? Hell yeah, you can ride the yeah, dragon. Ride the dragon. So the, now the character is going from table to table on the back of the dragon, and uh, you know it was it was such a wild way to get people into the game. Yeah, but people, I mean, brand new super players, worked, right? It was great. Brand, people loved it. Yeah, but it's it it is a lot of work to get it, refine it to the point where it even has a chance of working. Much less know that it's going to work. Yeah. But I think that was one of the things that really succeeded, and, and Greg Bilsland worked a lot on that dragon part of things, um, rather than the two of us, but um, that whole dragon thing ended up just being improvisation, the ride on the dragon piece, and we just came up with the rules. He was like, can, can, can players really do that? You know, this guy's showing up at my table, but he's from another table. Like, yep, go with it, work with it. Well, what, does, can the dragon fling him off? Sure. And so there were a number of characters that went falling to the... You know, you'd give them an extra chance to grab on, but, you know, this happens enough times, and people die falling off the dragon, and, but they're laughing the whole way, so it was great. How many people here have DM'd at conventions? Right. And just the rest of you play, mostly? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. How many times as a player at a con have you seen the DM or other players do something, and you're like... I'm going to do that with my home group. Yeah? I, okay, you, you, you still have to. Well, yes, welcome. Um, I thought I was a good DM. And my players, you know, the six players that I DM for every week, said, told me I was a good DM. I wasn't a good DM. Um, maybe you are. I'm not saying that you're not. I'm just saying, yeah, see? See, he said, okay, he says you are. Believe him. He knows you better than I do. Uh, but when I started going to conventions and just seeing all the tools and the tricks and the, the props and the, all the things that other DMs had blew my mind. Um, and true. so much, so much to learn, still so much to learn, which is another reason why I'm playing in like three or four different games this weekend instead of just you know, doing seminars and workshops and so on. Because uh, and and even so as a player, time. right? So like, um, I I would think I've got a great hook. My character's so cool, and I'd show up and I'd be like, oh, and like my friend Paul Lopper Ellison would show up and he'd be like, his wizard, which everybody had a toad familiar in three because it boosted your hit points, right? So you just had to. It was like the law, and he had a little sack around his neck and he'd be conferring with it. And we're like, that's probably his toad familiar, right? But he would never confirm it. And, and he eventually, when he got powerful, he like, had all these safeguards on the thing, so nobody could crack it. But, you know, it was this Toad Familiar, we all know, in, in Bag. And he would just confer with it, and you realize his character is the familiar. And the way he'd role-play that up was so good. And back then, there were, like, awards for, like, um, who had the most fun character at the table. And he just had, like, you know, reams of these certificates from winning every single one. And so you just learn from people like that on the player side, too. Yeah. All right? It's fascinating. So, any stories from you guys about convention games uh, that you run that have just been wonderful or horrible or you know, anything uh, that has 
stayed with you over the years, unless it's your first convention, and then we'll come back to you mm -hmm. later. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I, I got going on. You want me to go up there? Or just, I would love you to go up here. I just I don't want to send the podcast up. Yeah, one uh one really cool convention game I played, it blew my mind from a game design perspective, it was actually a Vampire the Masquerade game. It's the first time I played it. And we get there and the guy's like, Hey, here's your pre gen, so pre gen check, right? He's like, Okay, you're wearing a janitor clothing and you're wearing like a business suit and we all had this weird stuff we're wearing and stuff in our pockets and we get up and we're like in a basement of a house and we start going through the house and there's like okay there's a there's a person over there they're they're laying down and they're they're missing a shirt and it they look like they're holding a mop and i realized like i have a janitor shirt on and he's holding a mop he looks like a janitor maybe why did you lose your mop uh, or your shirt and he'll wake up and say some crazy stuff like well you beat me up you should know and you're like what are you talking about yeah i met you so we go through the house and all this weird stuff happens and we escape and as we escape we're captured and we're captured by this like vampire mafia and they say thank you for the entertainment and they put us back in the uh, basement and everything we did in the game to manipulate the house the next group that comes to play at the convention, they're starting off with all the things we did change. So there's like notes on the wall. And so nothing makes sense because it's like other groups leaving you clues and stuff. So I thought, wow, that's just great for a convention play where the, con the con goers change the world and the next group plays with it. That's great. Thanks, sorry. Yeah, that is great. See, these are the things we learn at conventions right. that we can go home and do. Yeah. Come on up. I did a convention at Gen Con a couple years ago, and I wanted to learn how Shadowrun worked. <laughs> so I played a Shadowrun game, and we spent, I don't know, the first hour figuring out. We had pre-gens the first, first hour figuring out what was on our character sheet. And we went through the adventure, and we got to the end of the adventure, and we failed because we didn't open, we didn't open a box. Or like we had, there was a, a there was a semi truck with a person in it that we needed to talk to, and we didn't open the semi truck, so we didn't talk to the person. So we got to the all the way to the end of the adventure, and we failed the whole adventure. And the DM was mad at us. <laughs> You've let the DM down. Which is funny. The premise that someone wrote an adventure that you could fail, right? Like our, from a perspective, outside perspective, that it wouldn't be had fun with in whatever quirky way it went, but it was actually a failure. Bad job, right? There was another story. This wasn't me, but it was someone who telling the story of how he spent about 15 or 20 minutes of this two-hour thing, more than that, trying to get dressed. The, the GM, I don't even remember what the rule set was. The GM made him make checks to put his socks on. And he kept failing. So all the other players are there waiting for this character. Do you remember the story? To get dressed. Yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah, the horror stories are just as entertaining and... Uh, and enlightening as as the uh, as the others, and that's why if you can get in a lot of these experiences, right? You see how differently someone handles something when they hand wave something, right? Like like um, uh, I was in the game today where where the DM was I think a little newer um, had a situation where we played it out over various rounds, but the, it was a foregone conclusion. In fact, the tactics are quite sound, and you could just say, yeah, that works. Right, and then just move on. And and we already knew we were going to be short on time. The adventure is too long to actually even fit in the spot anyway. So that's a great knowing when those examples are there that you can just speed through. And when you see DMs do that, you're like, oh, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, 
skip the the stuff that is preordained, right? Like just. Yeah. So, do you have any questions or anything for us before we wrap things up? Yes. I I've always had trouble playing online because D and D has always been and, and on role playing games and board games have always been a social thing for me. Um, I work twelve hours a day on a computer. The last thing I want to do is spend four more hours on the computer. Um, the pandemic forced me to learn how to use these tools. It was a good experience. Um, I learned a few tips for DMing in general, um, but I still would much rather sit down around the table uh, with people and you know get the joy out of the game that way. Yeah, I, I've done a lot of online over the years, but I think I've always treated games I played like on Map Tools or any of those old platforms or even on the new ones as sort of a, a secondary thing I'm doing to fill time and just have a little extra gaming. And I don't get out of it the same pleasures I do when I'm playing at the table. And and strangely, as a DM, like I've, some folks will say, like I love DMing online. The tools make things easier for me. For me, somehow, I can spend just as much time assembling Dwarven Forge or assembling Photoshopy things on Roll Twenty. It's the one is more enjoyable than the other. Like the physical, somehow that makes me feel like I'm building Legos and being a kid, and the other one makes me feel like it's a little too much like my work or yeah, like I'm computer time that I wish I didn't have. And the one good thing about the move to online play, uh, at least for me and in, in some of my experience with players, is that they they've gotten to learn about different modes of play. So maybe you don't have access to a tabletop uh, system. So you're going to play Theater of the Mind. And maybe people that have never played Theater of the Mind you know, can see that there is a way to play role-playing games without moving minis on a map that's just as, maybe not as enjoyable for each particular person, but there is something good about playing that way to be, to be had by different people. Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad it exists, and one thing that's really awesome at these conventions is seeing, like, Gen Con, people from other countries who can show up. Uh, when we, when through virtual weekends, we'll, we'll offer, like, tables that are be at uh, hours that work for Asia-Pacific regions, right? And you just need that DM who can run it, and suddenly you can have a whole other area of the world that can join and be part of it, and that's, that's really awesome. And play in their native languages. That's it. Yeah, uh, we're, we're going to be trying to do more of that for the virtual weekends as well. So, But right now in Portuguese... Uh, they have their own page on the Yawning Portal that you can sign in in Portuguese. Everything's translated. The player guide's translated, all of that. And so that effort that's volunteer-led uh, is really awesome. Yeah, and that's another great way to get involved with you know, the larger community is to go to those. Yeah. I just want to chime in about like, virtual and online stuff. Please. Yeah. I want to hear. Yeah, so it's, it's weird. I've never had a, a regular in-person group, right? My DM's over there. He lives in Wisconsin. I live in Kentucky. And we, play, we played online for what? From before the pandemic. Yeah, three, four years. Yeah, three, four years. We've had a pretty stable online uh, group. And, and that's been really cool because I've never had a regular group before. Like, I've never lived in a place where I could be around people. And so I, like, it's weird. I game online with my friends. And then I come to conventions so I can game in person with strangers. <laughs> Which, like, seems backwards that, hey, online is the way that I hang out with my friends. <laughs> and then and this is where – and I go in person to meet strangers, which is not what they told me would happen on the internet. But 
I just think that that's really cool, and it's really neat that we have the the multiplicity of the the tools and and are able to have those spaces. So I, I've always thought that was a really a really neat thing about online play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so true. And uh, one of the like the resurgence of the game is partly due to those tools that allow people who played as kids to play together again, no matter where they live in the world. And so the technology is is changing the community and indirectly changing the game. Um, and it's getting better and better. You see, like, on Roll20, all the YouTube videos coming together with tips and techniques and tutorials and, and, and a lot of investment both on their side and the community doing that to help everybody know how to do these tricks and do it well. Because at the end of the day, this is still a community-driven hobby, um, and you know, we can make our own change if we put our minds to it. So there you go. Anything else? Yeah, go ahead. So, so the the podcast is we try to do an hour, maybe a little over an hour, or an hour and a half if Teos really goes off. Um, but it's it's like half news and then half we'll pick a topic. So sometimes we'll get on a, a roll. Uh, the last uh, segments we did were taking the beginning of every Wizards of the Coast published product and looking at how does this adventure work for like low level. New how DM does it start. How, how does, does it, it start? Does it start strong? How does it is explain this? to the DM what's going on? Yeah. And so, yeah, we did that for several weeks. We will go through a topic and we'll cover it for several weeks at a time. Or if something you know comes out, stands out, we'll just do it like for one segment. We'll cover it. So it's, but it's generally D and D. The news sometimes we'll talk about other large, larger or small companies, like smaller D and D companies or larger role playing game companies. Because since we both work in the industry, you know, it's something that we have to keep, a, keep our fingers on the pulse. And we kind of force ourselves to because we have to podcast about it. So it's a... So besides the podcast, what do you do in the industry? Or and that can be enough right there. But what are your roles? Uh, Sean works at Ghostfire Games. This and Teos. way to do it, yeah. yeah. Sean works at Ghostfire Games with an extensive background in writing for RPGs, primarily D&D, but, uh, but he's worked for, you know, he's written for Fate and he's written for many other systems. Uh, but, yeah, right now he's working on a giant monster book. What do I do, Sean? Uh, Teos is a freelancer. Uh, he has a, a, so he's, his, I, how, how, how far do you want me to go into this? Uh, he is a freelancer, like an environmental specialist. So that's his normal job, although that's freelance as well. And then he does freelance game design work. He has worked on the Acquisitions Incorporated book uh, that Wizards published. Uh, he has worked on the Dungeon of Doom for um, Dwarven, Forge. Dwarven Forge. He worked on the board game Hero Quest that, uh, for Hasbro. So he, he did some of that. So he's been doing lots of different things for lots of different people, some of which he can talk about and some of which he can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but thank you for the question, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and thank you all for listening at home or in the audience. Um, and we're going to end there because well, someone else needs to come in. Needs the room, but I do want to say, like, uh, I hope no listener out there feels pressure to attend a con earlier than they should, right? Like, safety first. Make sure you like the con and what the con's practices are in this pandemic era. Yep, and if you have a bad kind of experience, don't be afraid to walk away. 
and uh, let the people know who's in charge, what happened, uh, why you didn't like it, and then you can, uh, hopefully they can clear it up and the next time will be better. And with that, thank you very much.